We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. So, Dr. Brueggemann, if someone's brand new to and has never read anything that you've written, what would be, if you had to get, you know, suggest, what would be a text where they could first be introduced kind of the way you're looking at scripture and how you go forward? What would be like an intro text that you would say, go to this one? Is it is it the brand new book or is it something that you've written well, earlier? I, I think my signature book is Prophetic Imagination. Mm. Uh, in which I laid down uh, the royal consciousness and the prophetic alternative, and uh, you can you can make the case that book is now forty years old mm. that I've been continuing to walk around those themes mm. uh, in a variety of ways. So uh, I, I suppose that's uh, as good a place as any to to work at what I do. Nice. Yeah. I'm wondering if, just for our audience's sake, in case they haven't read the book and they've come into Encountering Silence and this is the first time they've met uh, Dr. Brueggemann, could you kind of rehearse for us in a shorthand the, your, your book, Prophetic Imagination, since that's a signature? Could you kind of like just outline two or three main things? Well, I, I wrote that book when I was uh, relatively young. What I, what I outlined was uh, that the Bible is a conflict between royal consciousness uh, and uh, by that I met uh, the people that were clustered around King Solomon and all the kings in Jerusalem who had a great vested interest in the status quo and on the other hand uh, prophetic imagination which of course refers to uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and all of those poets and uh, what, the, what the Old Testament does is to uh, show how these poetic voices that are people who have no social standing or credentials are always in conflict with the power people in Jerusalem who try to silence them uh, and that our own faith is to participate in that conflict because uh, all of us want to gravitate uh, to some kind of royal consciousness, but all of us also have the capacity for prophetic imagination. And then I traced that on the one hand with um, Moses in front of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, and on the other hand with Jesus uh, in front of uh, the Roman governor uh, in the New Testament, uh, because those two encounters are basically the same. And then I think you can uh, trace that out in our uh, contemporary life, wherever you see uh, daring people uh, confront totalitarian regimes, uh, and uh, that gives rise to all kinds of, uh, of uh, liberation movements uh, around uh, 
race and class and gender. Um, so uh, my book was to say that's how to read the Bible and that's how to live our faith. So that's what I put together. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I must, I will tell you that I, uh, the, the, the book caught on at the beginning because the, uh, what we used to call the mother superiors, the head of all the nuns orders were meeting and the leader of that had my book and interpreted the royal consciousness through the male hierarchy of the Catholic church that was keeping all the nuns silent. So uh, you may have heard the, the uh, liberation quip that uh, nuns are women in pants and bishops are men in dresses. So it's uh, kind of a confusion of roles there a little bit historically. <laughs> also in, in prophetic imagination, you talk about hope. You write, hope on one hand is an absurdity too embarrassing to speak about, for it flies in the face of all those who claim we have been told are facts. Hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion, and one does not own one that not only is a great political and ex existential risk. On the other hand, hope is subversive, for it limits the grandiose pretension to the present, daring to announce that the present to which we have all made commitments is now called into question. And in this world of quote unquote fake news and dealing with these false realities in social media, how do we purify our hope? How do we know that hope, this hope of, of love and this hope of what's beyond is a reality and how do we treat it as such? Well, you have to decide which story is true. Mm. The story of um, what I call military consumerism is true, uh, then the best we can hope for is to maintain the status quo. Mm. If we decide that that story is not true, uh, which happens if you believe the gospel, mm -hmm. uh, then you can think and see and act differently. And, and I believe that the the history of the hopers uh, through human history are people who have decided that the dominant narrative is not true mm. and that investing our life in an alternative narrative is true. So I have this conviction that hope is closely related to pain and people who are honest about their pain have to insist that this is not right and it can be changed. When we are not in touch with our pain through denial or depression or whatever, uh, then we tend to accept our pain and take it as kind of normal and it has to be born. So I think if you think about the dialectic of pain and hope, what that leads you to in the Christian tradition is crucifixion on Friday and Easter on Sunday. The move from Friday to Sunday is a move from pain to hope. And I believe that uh, gospel people are always making that move. Uh, so I think that the, uh, the articulation of pain uh, as um, 
and evidence that things are not right and can be changed is a very important piece of work that leads to our thinking then about, well, what, all, what other alternative is possible? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'll cite two examples. One example is the, the, um, the great recital in Hebrews 11, uh, faith is the assurance of hoped for, for and the conviction of things not seen. And then it is a recital of all the hopers in Israel's history. The second example is Greta. Uh, Greta from uh, Norway, isn't she? And uh, she has she has borne witness with her body to the conviction uh, that our present fossil-propelled economy is not right, and it can be changed. Mm. Uh, and I think um, that's how hope works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Swedish. She's Swedish, I Swedish. think. Yeah, yeah. I get all those Lutherans mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thinking about that marriage of the purifying hope is painful. And, and the marriage of, of pain and hope yeah. is solidifies the reality of what hope is. Yeah. I, because I, I it's beyond. The test of, in fake news, that the, the, uh, the test of real news, that real news comes from people who are in touch with the pain of the world. Mm. And anybody who is not in touch with the pain of the world probably is not a truth teller. Hmm. I, you're blowing my mind here because I think that wonderful connection between hope and pain really does help solidify why the work of a Christian uh, or anyone who's following the Hebrew scriptures, you know, if we're following the prophetic imagination is to bear witness, to watch the oppressed, to be with the oppressed, and to see the pain and to and to voice it, and to notice it in ourselves, and so that we're, we don't get caught up in that royal consciousness that you're talking about, that if we can be true to, hey, look what's happening inside of you, see the pain yep. that's there, yep. and then see the pain of brothers and sisters in the world, and see the pain of creation or or whatever, that you can then move away from royal consciousness to hope, to prophetic imagination. So as you may know, one of the axes that I grind is that the church has to recover the lament psalms. Yes. Because the lament psalms are the classic voicing of pain in the presence of God. And uh, you can test that out by seeing that the church spends a great deal of energy uh, keeping away from the lament psalms. Yeah. We want our religion to feel good. Yeah, absolutely. I, and it just reminds me of um, we just, our recent podcast uh, had a guest who is talking and does work with Henry Nouwen's work. And I keep thinking of the wounded healer here, this idea yeah. of brokenness, yes. seeing other exactly. brokenness. Yeah. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yep. So, Dr. Brueggemann, if you had the chance to speak directly to the emperor, to the person, whether historical or imaginative, who yeah. is at the center of power, who is the one who's calling the shots, what would you say to that person? Well, I, I hadn't thought about that. 
I suppose I would say that we're all in this together. So the wealthy are bound to the poor, the powerful are bound to the vulnerable and so on and so on. And uh, it is uh, unsustainable for the wealthy and the powerful to imagine that they can have a safe, good life without connection to the neighbors. It's, it simply is the truth that there are not enough guns and there are not enough dogs to keep the victims of injustice from having their say in human history. Uh, and it is simply a truth that's unavoidable. And I think in Christian tradition, Jesus became a rallying point uh, for, exact, for exactly making visible the left behind and the Roman Empire didn't mind having lots of people left behind, but it couldn't tolerate their being made visible. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. I'm reminded of a time, and this must have been 25 or 26 years ago, when I had the opportunity to hear Angela Davis speak. And she was yeah. speaking at Georgia, Georgia State University. I was working there at that time. And, and as you can imagine, the, I, I went to hear her speak, and the audience was predominantly African-American. I would say less, certainly less than 5%, maybe even less than 2% of the attendees were Caucasian. And at some point, somebody, I think one of, one of the few whites that were there asked Dr. Davis, what is your message to us? What is your message to the Caucasian community? And she was very gracious. And she said, first of all, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, for entering into our struggle and our pain. But then what the next thing she said has just stayed with me ever since. And she said, I would ask you to step out of your privilege. That's it. I would ask you to step out of your privilege. Yeah. And so to bring this back to silence, you know, it seems to me that for those of us who do have privilege, whether we want it or not, you know, I'm white, I'm a male, I'm in a heterosexual marriage, I'm educated, you know, I, I have lots of the privilege markers that maybe this is one of the reasons why I feel so drawn to silence, not in a coercive sense, yeah. but in a sense that there's a level on what, you know, your comment earlier that if you don't know pain, you're not telling the truth. Right. I, I've lived a comfortable life. Yeah. For, me, for me to yeah. know pain, I have yeah. to listen. Right. I have to be in relationship, but that relationship has to be shaped by yeah. listening. Yeah. So, and it's the story of so many of us and 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 I think this back to this idea of the that the empire wants to 
you know, wants to control the voice, but also control silence or use silence for the purposes of that's silence. Right. That's you exactly know, the, right. the, the empire doesn't want to listen. Yep. That's right. Listening is a big fat inconvenience. Yep. And right. so those of us who have benefited from empire, it becomes an act of personal courage right. to shut up. Yep. I, can, I can quote Dr. Brueggemann on this point when he writes, humanness depends on being, being faithfully heard. And being faithfully heard depends on risky speech of self-disclosure uttered in freedom before a faithful listener. And that's, that's huge for all of us in different ways to be both the listener and, and sometimes the one offering the risky speech. That's right. Exactly so. Yep. And the amazing thing about the biblical tradition is uh, that we have a tradition that, that affirms that God is a faithful listener. So that the Exodus begins when they speak and God says, I have heard your voice, I know your condition, and I will come down and save. So, Dr. Brueggemann, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your, um, your book, Sabbath as Resistance. Uh, you write, multitasking is the drive to be more than we are, to control more than we do, to extend our power and our effectiveness. Such practice yields a divided self with full attention given to nothing. And I, I was really, I'm really touched by this work and just the importance of, of attention. And, um, you know, poet Mary Oliver talks about attention as a form of prayer. And this kind of goes along with the listening discussion we were just having. And I wonder if you have any advice for people in today's world where we're so bombarded with everything from advertisements to to-dos to um, social media to busyness. I mean, busyness is, is almost like worn as a badge now. That's right. And it debilitates well, us from fully think, giving ourselves. I think faithful people simply have to disengage from the rat race. Uh, and everybody has to find out how to do that. But I suspect that for very many people, the first step is putting your phone away. You don't have to be available. People who go deep are not endlessly available. Uh, and we've gotten to think uh, that you're going to be left behind if you're not instantly all the time available. Well, the truth is almost none of that matters at all. Uh, so I think that if we are endlessly multitasking, uh, we are trying to do too much. And uh, the important thing about the rat race is that even if you win it, you're still a rat. <laughs> and we keep imagining we're going to win the rat race. And we school our kids to run the rat race. And it's stupid. And it's destructive. And it, what it does is it hollows people out. And I think Sabbath is a refusal of all of that. Mm -hmm. I preached on Sabbath last week, and a guy was very affirmative of my sermon. And then he said, while you were preaching, I made a list of all the things I have to do today. <laughs> there you go. There it is. <laughs> 
The one that I always heard was, as soon as you are winning the rat race, along come the faster rats. Mm. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. I, I have one last question. If, if uh, Dr. Brueggemann, if you would indulge me, uh, one more Hebrew question. Yes. There is a word that I have stumbled across in the Hebrew. It only appears in the Psalms. And it's only four, three or four instances. And again, I'm not a, I, I've never studied Hebrew, so I'm, I'm yeah. a total babe in the woods. But, um, but I've, I have had some conversation with some rabbis about this, and I would just love to know your take. And, it, and the word, the, the transliteration of the word would be dumia, D-U-M-I-Y-A-H or Y-Y-A-H. It appears in Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. But what I'm really interested in is, is the first verse of Psalm 65. Um, it appears in that verse, and I, and I don't really understand how that, that gets translated into English. So I'd just be curious your take on that. What's the word in Psalm oh, 65? 65 is like the first verse. And what's the word? D-U-M-I-Y-A-H. Dumia, would that be how it would be? And how is it translated in 65? Well, different, different translations render it differently. Um, Eugene Peterson in the message translates that word as silence. But I also see that this verse translated as praise waits for you in Zion, O God. And so and the, the way Eugene Peterson translates the verse is silence is praise. Well, I haven't, I haven't particularly studied that verse, but I would think that that's what it looks like to me, mm. that silence is praise. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, but it would be a silence that's kind of a waiting silence. I think mm. that's, yep. that's my sense. So it's I not, would think that'd be about right. Yeah. So it's, so it's, so it's, it, that it's, uh, it's odd if that's what it means, because uh, the rest of the song is sort of lavish praise, but. You know, maybe it is. But it might be that know. it might be that moment that you were describing of we need to learn to listen. You know, yeah. it might be that moment. Yep. It's possible. Yeah. The, yep. the, the pause before the song. It's like a rest in a in a in, yeah, it in could music, be. You know, that like um, watchmen talk, wait for the morning. If right. you talk, yes. If you talk to the rabbis, that ought to be good enough. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> you know. So um and uh, yeah, apparently Rashi back in what the twelfth or thirteenth century. Yep. The way he commented on that verse, he said, silence is our most eloquent praise because any language leaves glaring omissions. There you go. Wow, Which that's I think beautiful. Kind of tie, ties in with your, right. your comment about that, that the grace of the scripture is that it cannot simply be read one way. That's right. Uh, exactly. That, that, yep. you know, and, and it seems that waiting is such an important theme you run into yep. in the Psalms. That's right. And that that way, and I think that ties in with Sabbath. What yeah. is the Sabbath other than a period of of sacred yeah. waiting? You you know, in in Hebrew, the word that that we often translate hope is also the word wait, as in those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It's the same word as hope, hmm. so it is very expectant waiting. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, lovely. I've never heard, thought of the translation of those who hope upon the Lord as opposed to those who wait upon the Lord. It could be translated that way. Wow. And we know hope includes pain. Yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right.
Yep. But it's but it's not limited by pain. Right. Mm -hmm. It it mm -hmm. moves beyond. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, this has been such mm. a rich conversation. Yeah, Thank so good. So Thank you. I mean, it actually has connected so many dots for me that I, I haven't been able to articulate. Thank you so much for doing that for us. Good. I'm glad we could uh, be together. Yeah, me too. Yes. Me Thank too. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and to to teach us. Really mm. good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And well, again, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Okay. We are encountering silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is carlmccollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>